everything in video games is just phallic dicks that like i dare it you really to look is. in a video everything. game and not find a dick i anyway um welcome preston <laughs> is that how the episode's gonna start i don't know <laughs> Welcome, Preston. Um, we usually start the podcast, just as an FYI, with the guest giving us their safe word. So what is your safe oh. word today? Wow. My safe word today? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. Well, you know what? I'm going to go with the classic, which is, you know, a safe word that I use, um, you know, uh, uh, fairly often, which is churrascaria, uh, which is actually a Brazilian Portuguese word, which means steakhouse. So there you go. Yum. <laughs> Okay, and hopefully, Preston, you heard that audio and I was not just sitting here in silence. Welcome back to What's Your Safe Word? I'm Amp, uh, and today I have the lovely guest. I, I'm lucky to have the presence of a good friend and title holder and rubber person, uh, Mr. Preston Wex. Hello, Preston. Hey, Amp. How hey. are you? Nice to see everyone. <laughs> I'm doing great. It's a real pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to be back, um, honestly. It's been, what, four years now? Three years? It feels like 20 in quarantine, but <laughs> yeah. it does. It does. Or, you know, you know, 2000 years. But hey, no, I'm doing great. It's such a pleasure to see you again. And, you know, I'm just sad that we can't do this in person. That's like the biggest thing, because I just want to oh. give you a big hug right now. You know, um, virtual, so virtual it's good hugs. to see you. Though. Virtual hug. Virtual hug. Touching yep. my camera awkwardly. Anyway, uh, for those that don't know, Preston has been on the show before. Uh, we did a, it was a whole title holder episode forever ago, like literal years ago. Great episode still, still holds true. A lot's happened since then, um, but I just wanted to have Preston on. We've been doing some virtual things recently. The puppy play contest was the last thing we did. And it was just nice to see his face and catch up. But I figured let's have you on. Let's talk about not only rubber, but who you are, what you've been up to and just kind of catch up. But but first, I feel like I always like to let the person talk about themselves because they know themselves and what they're up to so much better. Preston, why don't you just say hello to everyone? Give us your elevator speech. This is not a contest, but if it was, I am grading you. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> well, kidding, kidding, kidding. <laughs> better follow the rubric then, Amp. <laughs> Well, hey everybody, uh, I'm Preston So, um, Preston Wex So, um, and I am, I've been in the kink community for, oh gosh, about, uh, oh geez, um, yep, a little too. over, I guess, eight to 10 years now. Yeah, it's been a long time. Um, and, uh, you know, you might know me from some of the titles that I've had in the past. I was actually the first uh, Asian international uh, fetish title holder in history. Um, I was Mr. New England Rubber, the first Asian New England, Mr. New England Rubber back in 2016. I was Mr. International Rubber uh, in 2017, the 20th uh, Mr. National Rubber. I'm also actually the first Mr. National Rubber of color, believe it or not, and the only one so far. Um, so that's another cool thing. Um, and, you know, my history in the kink community has been whew, serpentine. I mean, it's all over the place. Um, I started out actually um, at my university. Uh, I went to school in New England and um, I actually was a member of the BDSM and kink and fetish uh, student organization that we had at my college. Was your college? Yes. So there was, yeah. So actually we had a club. Um, so, so I'll say this right now because I know it's going to come <laughs> up very soon, but um, you know, I went to a, a, a very well-known school that you might have heard of called Harvard. And there's actually um, a, uh, was at least, I'm not sure if it's still there, but, but a prominent student organization called Harvard College Munch. Exactly what you think it sounds like, exactly what it oh. is. 
And we were actually um, really active at a time when, you know, there was all sorts of debate going on about student organization funding. And one of the things that happened was um, Bill O'Reilly on the O'Reilly Factor actually invited us to come on the show against the Harvard College Republicans to have a debate about uh, university funded sex clubs on campus. Now keep in mind, right? Like a munch is never about sex, right? A munch, yeah. You're not having sex at a munch, right? You're talking about kink, you're talking about fetish, you're talking about safe, sane, consensual practices. And, you know, of course, because we are an entirely anonymous club, there's no, uh, you know, we don't out anyone, we don't identify anyone. Of sure. course, you know, nobody appeared on that segment with Bill O'Reilly, except for the Harvard College Republicans. And I still remember like it was yesterday, how much chatter there was about that on campus. Oh, um, so, you know, one of the things I did at that group was to really help um, people learn, you know, other students learn about uh, rubber and leather and spandex and neoprene and stuff like that. We had experts on rope bondage, you know, shibari. We had experts who were really involved in, in, in flogging and whipping and those kinds of things. So that's where my kind of journey started. Wow. Nowadays, though, you know, um, my title year ended, what, three years ago now? Yeah, three years ago, as of actually this month. And, and uh, nowadays, I really focus a lot of my time on, um, you know, people of color in the kink community and supporting uh, um, our efforts to improve inclusion, improve representation within the kink and fetish community. So today, my focus is on writing about the experience of people of color in the kink community for Recon.com and Recon Magazine. And I also do, um, uh, I just founded actually a new group called uh, the Asian Leather and Kink Alliance, which is an anti-racist affinity group for uh, people who are of Asian heritage in the kink community. Uh, if that's not enough of a, of a summary, I've also, uh, I'm also on the teams that work on, you know, I was on the team that worked on Mr. Rubber Mexico, which uh, we can talk about, <laughs> uh, as well as Mr. Uh, Rubber Brazil. So, uh, and I got the opportunity to MC both of those contests, which was an absolute joy. And um, today I'm still active in rubberizing the world and, and really spreading the gospel of latex and rubber throughout the world. Uh, but with that added element of, you know, let's really talk about what it's like in the community for Black, Indigenous, and people of color, as well as especially, you know, you know, the experiences that I have very familiar, a strong degree of familiarity with, which is anti-Asianness and anti-Asian racism within the community as well. Yeah, that was a lot. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that was a great primer. I had no idea that there that Harvard had a kink group. That I'm still stuck on that. Um, but. No, let's talk about, let's talk about how we met. Let's talk about, let's definitely talk about Brazil and Mexico and all of the events. Cause like last, it was all last year, right? I'm again, COVID. You know. <laughs> yeah, 2000 years ago. <laughs> but it was like, we were both together, like every single event and every single state and then all the other continents. I mean, we met, it was your, I, I met you the year that you ran because that was, I think my first MIR. I didn't really get to talk to you tons though, beyond like congratulations and like just small talk. And then the following year, it turns out that I was one of the judges along with you for your title year. So you were the, the I believe you were the head judge. Yeah, you were, you were coming back to find your successor. So we really got to have a good time and get to know each other as judges first and foremost. Um, and then we always, not complaining whatsoever, we were always in the same circles at events because we were either judging or were there as guests or you were running it and needed some help. And so, first of all, thank you for coming on today I, as we're like probably 10 minutes into the episode. Uh, second of all, uh, I just appreciate the work that you do. And obviously we did the YouTube stuff um, forever ago. And since then, you know, you've just 
taken just full speed ahead, just made sure that people know that you're in the space and you're doing your thing and you are making space not only for yourself, but other people, which is so, so, so important. Um, and that's going to be primarily what we're going to discuss today. I mean, obviously, we'll talk about all the messy moments with, through all of the events that we've done together because there's there's a few that's, that stick out. Remember the pizza that one time? Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> uh, Brazil. So it turns out Brazil has great food. Not so much at like two in the morning after you've finished your sex club uh, contest. Oh, and, you're talking about that pizza uh, app. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Well, Brazil, by the way. Um, <laughs> so for those who don't know, uh, that was Brazil, right? That was Brazil. That was Brazil. That was yes. Brazil. Yeah. So you, were, yeah. you were doing your, your first contest there. Uh, I flew in. I had literally came from my cousin's wedding that I was the 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 person who married them. So like literally the day before this gigantic sex fetish contest that I was helping you judge, I was literally like marrying my cousin to her husband. Um, but I took all that footage and I still have all that footage from that trip and I want to to edit it together. I just, I don't know if I, Oh, it's going to be a fun edit because there's definitely a few nights where we are just so exhausted by the end of the night, but yeah. we need food and we've had a little bit of alcohol. Oh, good times. Anyway. And, and you know, that's, that's like a classic for us too. Like that's what we do all the time though, Amp. Like, you know, I remember like late night food after a kink event is like our jam, you know, cause, cause, cause you remember after Mr. Rubber Mexico two years ago too. Oh yeah. Um, we went to Cabaretito, that that dra that amazing bar that was like a maze, and then we went to uh, get get some food afterwards. And uh, at uh, you know the the famous the amazing Casa de Toño in Mexico City. Yes. And um, we went Brazil to like was five such a times that trip. Like literally every every event that every event we could have gone to during that trip, we would go to this amazing. I don't I don't even know how to describe the food, but you probably do. But oh, <laughs> such good food. Like if you're traveling as a kingster, go out for food after your event, find the good places. But that's not why you're here today. Um, <laughs> so Preston, I'm curious, what got you into the, the, the kink scene? I'm guessing Harvard wasn't the, the first place that you kind of found kink and fetish and not that I'd be surprised. They, maybe they call it Harvard. Ooh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, it's it's kind of, you know, I think every kinkster, every fetishist has, um, you know, one of those weird stories that, you know, it's like you have a bit of an awakening and you kind of realize that there's something different about you. You know, you're kind of, it's like that, you know, it's like that scene in the matrix, right? You know, and, and, you know, people talk about the matrix as a trans allegory. As you can tell, I just watched the matrix reloaded last night. And um, there's, you know, there's, there's that scene where Morpheus says, you know, it's like a splinter in your mind. You you've known that something's like different about you. And, and yes, that's really about gender dysphoria, right. You know, with regards to the, the Wachowski sisters, but well, um, it's also, yeah. I think, something that a lot of kinksters and fetishists really, really, really kind of feel. I still remember this like it was yesterday. When I was in uh, like elementary school, uh, one of the first um, books that I remember getting was the Guinness Book of World Records from the year 1999. And if you've ever looked at the Guinness Book of World Records, there's, you know, all the records in the front, but in the back is the sports section. And the sports section has all sorts of really spandex and neoprene. You've got people who are like scuba divers. You've got, and my favorite page was the speed skating page. 
the speed skating records. I don't know anything about speed skating. I started trying to do some amateur speed skating because I like those suits. But yeah, exactly. And I still remember, actually, there's a Canadian speed skater named Jeremy Waterspoon who had on this amazing olive green, like military green speed skating suit that's, you know, hooded because, you know, you, you have to protect yourself. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I was a, when I was a young kid, that was like, I was in, I was just enthralled by that page. You know, it was something that really always kind of, kind of got to me. Yeah, it imprints and then, almost, right? That first kink experience. Yeah. It's like an imprinting process. Exactly. And, and that was absolutely something that, that um, really kind of influenced me a lot. And then, you know, in sixth and seventh grade, I started getting into skin gear. You know, so one of the things that I got into when I was in sixth grade was gloves. In seventh grade, I started getting into cycling gear and and, and wrestling gear and that sort of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, that's kind of where actually uh, I started to realize that, wow, I have actually this really kind of strong desire for wearing skin tight clothes, things that are really compressed and and constricting. And, um, you know, that was something that that really influenced me a lot. And then, of course, in you know, eighth grade, ninth grade, beginning of high school, I discovered Wetsuit Lads, Andy Elikra, GearFetish.com, some of these really popular mainstay websites that, you know, if you were in the kink community about uh, 10 years ago, these names will really resonate with you. GearFetish.com, Wetsuit Lads, especially, you know, that was a really, really fetish. important site. I managed by Gordon Valentine. Yep. Yeah. Gear Fetish was big. And then the other one was Andy Elikra, um, you know, this, 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 this British guy who would post pictures of himself in spandex. And um, I still remember the forums of that site, like the <laughs> forums for wetsuit, wetsuit lads, the forums for Andy Elikra, Gear Fetish. And of course, now, you know, now we have Recon, now we have Fat Life and all those things. But that's really where I got my start. But it wasn't actually until, um, you know, so, so one of the interests, I don't know if I've actually told you this, Amp, but, you know, one of the interesting things about my background is that I actually knew that I was into latex and rubber and those sorts of things before I knew I was gay. Like one, one of the interesting things is that um, I, you know, back in middle school, I used to like seeing both men and women in gear because when you see anyone in latex, it's just like, mm, you know, it's just, oh, it's just an amazing look. Yeah. There's and, a bit of a fetishy aspect to it that that kind of transcends gender and, and, and sex, I think. Exactly. For some, for some it, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and so for me, I consider myself actually more, I would say I'm more of a of a rubber man or more of a rubberist or a, or a fetishist than actually, you know, I would, you know, I would consider myself traditionally gay. Um, that being said, when I got to college, that was the first time that I could actually explore kink for real. So that's why I always say that, you know, about 10 years ago is when I started because um, that was when I, I bought my first cat suit. Uh, I bought my first latex. I got, you know, got to try it on for the first time in, in private. You know, it wasn't just like a wetsuit that I got at a surfing class or a wrestling singlet that I stole from the locker room. Don't tell anyone I said that. <laughs> um, and, and things of that nature, right? It was actually like, I was able to actually do it and, and, and practice it in privacy. Of course, I had my roommate in the same room as me. And there were a couple of times where he nearly caught me. Uh, when I was, you know, jacking it off, and wasn't that the, in the bottom bunk? And it's the fun part, absolutely, absolutely. I well, mean, you know, yeah, and yeah. I'm totally more exhibitionist than Boyer, so absolutely. <laughs> checking all the boxes. Um, and for those not on Patreon, not watching our interaction right now, a, you're missing out, uh, and b, you're missing out because Preston, in classic Preston form, is in full rubber, I believe, right now. Like, you have a cat suit on. Yeah. Oh my God. It's actually just a shirt. It's a short sleeve shirt. It is and, still uh, some boy shorts. 
It is still. This is for all you Patreon. Ooh, yeah. Get that sticky. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, You can probably hear it clapping a little bit on the mic. I think that's why they're here, though. So that's actually really interesting. And I, I know I've talked about my, like, spider bite or, you know, superhero moment, you know, where you, like, figure out your superpower exists or however you want to call it. Um, but I absolutely mm-hmm. knew that I was into bondage. I obviously didn't know what it was called, but like, you know, you like play with like neighborhood kids, cops and robbers. Some people get like tied up. Um, I think I actually got tied up kind of, but I knew that I was into it and aroused by it before I even knew what arousal was back when I was like, I don't know, 10 or 11, 12. And that was way before I knew what gay was and before I even realized that I was sexually different. And that's a whole other traumatic experience during Christian, like Catholic school. But yeah, that's so funny. Yeah. And I do vividly remember that moment because you, it's a different feeling that now, now we understand we have words for it. But before that, in the sex repressed household I lived in, you don't know how to explain that. And there are no words for it, especially, you know, and I, and I think, um, you know, I think you and I probably had a similar background when it came to, um, you know, the fact that when I went to school, it was abstinence only sex education, you know, there was no mention of, you know, the only time you would hear the word gay is in the context of, you know, putting, putting somebody down or putting something down. Yeah. And, um, but I had that kind of moment, you know, actually, it's funny that you say that because I actually had a very similar awakening moment, very simple, you know, just like the rubber epiphany. I also had a similar epiphany when it came to bondage. Um, I remember I was playing mafia with uh, some of my neighborhood um, friends and afterwards, like I lost and I remember it like it was yesterday. They tied me down onto a trampoline and oh, then uh, stuck stuck ice down my back. And uh, yeah, so, so so a little bit of ice play in there too. I don't know if anyone's out there is into ice yeah, play, but play. Um, yeah, temperature play. And and uh, yeah, so, um, you know, some of these formative moments, it's really interesting how we remember them decades upon decades upon decades later, and they still have such an impact on our psyche. It's incredible. It's, yeah. it's just- Some of them good, really some of them not so good, but (laughs) Uh no, absolutely. I remember the first jockstrap I ever bought. I remember the first time getting tied up. Um, I remember the first time going to a gay bar, wearing a harness, like all all of the first. I remember my first puppyhood, like, yeah. And I remember most of those things fondly because it's, again, formative things that happened, first experiences. Um, But with the good, there's also bad as well. Um, I mean, I know that while while reminiscing and talking about the fun stuff is always nice to walk down memory lane it's also important to kind of recognize the hardships and and things that you you go through i mean because that's what our show is generally about talking about the good the bad the real um and i know you mentioned like working for recon um and i want to just give a quick shout out to not only sandy who's lovely and we we worked with him as well uh specifically on race related uh episodes um but also just recon for being a platform that recognizes that representation is important. Um, I remember the conversation that I had with Sandy, which we'll get, I'm sure, deeper into years ago. Again, years ago, this is probably the year after I met you. We talked about it and we just talked about like how running an event, because Sandy is a person of color and high up at Recon, uh, running an event, he would always in- intentionally choose models that were not the the quote unquote norm or like the expect like the expectation of what you see on all of the no shade in well some shade 
at all these larger events, you know, they use poster boys that are generally white, athletic, or daddy, or, you know, muscular and fit. Um, and Sandy always intentionally made sure that the people on the posters for recon were people of color or different body types or just celebrating everything that existed besides the like the cis white macho gay that we all have this this image of because of how our culture kind of was brought up whether it was intentional or not it's a little racist well a lot racist in many ways um, and there was even one thing that we were kind of talking about this episode, and one of your points was specifically about like Tom of Finland and and lack of uh, inclusion representation mm. there. I would love to to kind of go down that rabbit hole, um, pun intended, um, and just kind of talk about your experiences <laughs> in in the space and how you've kind of navigated it. Because for those that don't know, title holders get a lot of attention, whether they want it or not, and it's it's a double edged sword. You, you get to go to events, but you also have a target and you have to be perfect and you have to be, you know, what people expect. Um, how's your experience been? Yeah. Wow. Well, um, you know, to say that it was a roller coaster is definitely um, quite an understatement. Um, and, and, you know, I think that, that, you know, I definitely want to want to touch on my title year and, and, and to, and to talk about that. Um, I find it really interesting that we, um, you know, Sandy's point about representation is is something that has a lot of ramifications and has a lot of impact on self-image, the way that we see ourselves in the community, the way that people outside of the community see us as well. And, you know, one of the things that I think a lot of people don't realize, and, and you alluded to this uh, just, just, just now, Amp, which I think is great, right, is that when it comes to the larger world and larger society, right, um, the cis straight white man is the default setting, right? It's like the default configuration, right? You choose your character, you know, it's like that classic metaphor about white privilege, right? Yeah. Is that when you have the default setting, things come to you a lot easier, right? You level up faster, you're able to get to the bosses faster, what, you know, what have you. And one of the things that I think a lot of people don't realize is that in the LGBTQ community and in the kink community, the default setting is the cis white gay man. And it's something that has been solidified over many, 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 many years. And let me just share a little bit about sort of what it was like for me growing up. And I think this is one of the things that a lot of, um, you know, a lot of people in the gay community and a lot of people in the kink community don't really understand is that when you grow up as a minority, and I grew up in Colorado, right? which is a place that I could count on one hand, the number of, of Asians and, and, and part Asians that were at my school, it really kind of, um, it really kind of messes with you, you know? And there are certain things that um, a lot of Asians, Asian Americans in particular deal with, just like Asian Brazilians, Asian Mexicans, Asian Colombians, Asian Europeans deal with, which is you're in this world, you're in this space where you constantly see people that don't look like you being represented and, and being in these positions of power and privilege, and you don't see yourself in any of those, right? Yeah. And there's a lot of reasons for that, right? Like there, you know, especially when it comes to Asian Americans, we suffer from really particular prejudices, right? One of those is the model minority myth, right? Which is this notion that, you know, Asian Americans can sit here with the white folk because, you know, we're not, 
you know, we're not we're not doing things that are uh, against, let's say, these white supremacist structures. We're not doing things that are necessarily, and and it's and it's and it's really this way that a wedge has been built between other people of color and um, you know uh, uh, white society is that Asians have been thrust into this space where we're the model minority. Why can't other BIPOC, why can't other black indigenous and brown people be like the Asians, right? And that's a really problematic view because Asians are not a model minority. There is no such thing as a model minority, right? Many Asians live in poverty. Many Asians have really, really bad mental health issues. Many Asians suffer from a lot of very, very particular issues that the model minority myth kind of just papers over and says, hey, Asians are doing fine. When if you look at uh, Filipino Americans, when you look at Vietnamese Americans, when you look at Hmong Americans in particular, you know, poverty rates are through the roof or a lot of times there's a lot of issues around uh, things like unemployment, around uh, racist hate, hate crimes and that sort of thing. Um, and that really goes back to a lot of the perpetual foreignness that we feel. And one of the really ironic things about Asian Americans is that, you know, some of us have been here since the early 1800s. And yet, even if you've been here for five generations, you're still considered a foreigner, right? You know, you think about the Chinese laundries in San Francisco, where you are, Amp. Yep. You think about the railroad workers, right, all throughout the Mountain West. You think about um, the coolie system of labor, right, that led to uh, a huge influx of people from China and from India and from other parts of Asia. But then they were kind of just left here and they said, oh, okay, but you're not actually going to become American, right? And this perpetual foreignness is something that really hurts a lot. And, and one of the things that I find is really sad is that, you know, I have a friend who recently did some unconscious bias training. And he told me afterwards, he said, you know what? I know in my head that Asian Americans and Asians in the US are American through and through, right? Are people who, you know, are, are just as American. But you know what that unconscious bias training taught him? He did this little, you know, exercise and it actually indicated to him that he has a bit of a bias where he sees Asians as being more foreign than black or indigenous or brown or 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 you know Latinx people. And this is something that is all throughout society, right? You see people kind of act this way towards Asians that is like, where are you from? No, 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 no. but wait, where are you really from? Oh, I hate. And the thing is, most of us don't know, like, don't know what you mean, right? Like when I say I'm from Colorado. That's because I don't know anywhere else besides Colorado in terms of where I'm from. So, you know, it's it's that sort of um, xenophobic kind of yellow peril attitude as well, where where people are kind of like they 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 still see us as this exotic, weird, you know, kind of like oddity um, in the kink community and the gay community. But the last thing that's really really hard, and this is something that um, I think a lot of people don't recognize, and and this is true among people of color too is that Asians, and, and this is not just true of East Asians, but it's also true of South Asians. Um, we go through a process of, of what I call, and what a lot of people call desexualization. And a lot of this is because we've never been in positions or in uh, media or represented in such a way that suggests that you know Asians are sexual and Asians are highly horny and Asians are hot and bothered and Asians can be just as sexy and can be just as attractive and can also be gay and kinky as well. That's the important part, right? <gasps> so one of the, well, you know, people's favorite movie is 16 Candles, right? Like people love that movie, but actually among Asian Americans, it's, it's, it's a movie that we really don't like because there's a portrayal of an Asian American character in that movie who is never able to kind of 
um, realize his desire for love and realize kind of, you know, his, like people are always focusing on others and not on the Asians. Um, I don't know if you're a Trekkie or, or if you're a Star Trek fan, but if you think about um, Star Trek Voyager, right? Um, Ensign Harry Kim is another example of this. Um, you know, there's, there's that white first mate, the first officer, right? Tom Paris. Yeah. And, there's, and there's this trope all throughout Star Trek Voyager, right? Where, where Harry Kim, he's, he's this Asian American uh, uh, man, and he's constantly chasing after alien women or, you know, chasing after, you know, women. And, and Tom Paris, this, this white man, tells him, right? Look, stop chasing impossible women. But Tom Paris, if you look at his character, he's constantly chasing after women who he eventually gets with, right? So it's this whole notion of, of this idea that Asians have a particular lane that they're supposed to be in, right? Harry Kim shouldn't be dating these impossible women, but Tom Paris can, right? And it's this idea that Asians have a lane and you have to stay in that lane, but why can't Harry Kim or why can't some of these people go and chase after these impossible women, right? And then if you take a bit of a step back and you look at representation, right? And, and, and this, this goes back to Sandy's point. And this is why it's so important to see some of these things. And going back to Tom of Finland as well, right? Yeah. So one of the things I want to ask is a rhetorical question to the audience, right? When was the last time you saw kinky porn, or not even kinky porn, gay porn, that featured two Asians? Not one Asian, but two Asians, mm -hmm. right? And to that... Chance when was it a, a site that was built by somebody who was Asian kind of adhering to or, or not, not promoting specifically for, but literally doing it because people almost fetishize and are specifically only wanting to see that content because it has Asian guys in it. And then yes. kind of unpacking that as well. But I will let you continue. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> yes. And, and I definitely, I'm just about to get there, you know, because, because that's one of the really challenging things too, is that, um, you know, when you look at the representation of black men or black women in the kink community, when you look at the the, the representation and the and the depiction and the portrayal of Asian men and Asian women in the kink community, generally speaking, it's in a very exoticized or othering or or just a very it's it's very different from how white people are portrayed. Let's just say it that way, right? Like, and you can see those differences, right? For example, if you look at Tom of Finland, here's a really good example, right? Tom of Finland. Uh, first of all, Tom of Finland um, depicted more than just white men, right? He depicted black men as well. Yeah. But if you look at the portrayals of, like, if you if you look at all of Tom of Finland's portrayals of of white and black men, what you notice is some patterns, right? Like, you generally see that the white men in Tom of Finland's art are generally of higher socioeconomic status than the black men, right? You see uh, white men in sailor uniforms. You see white men in um, you know, in, in ties and kind of this more refined look and, 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 but, but, but black men, you don't see quite as often in those kinds of, of, of uh, things, right? So when you think about that and you think about the way that black men are fetishized and the way that black men are, are, are seen as just BBC, right? It's just an object. They're just, they're, they're, they're nothing besides this thing that I fetishize, right? Now let's talk about the fact that, you know, as some of you might not know, there are there is not a single Asian in any of Tom of Finland's art, nor is there a single indigenous person in any of Tom of Finland's art. Well, and to that, I believe there is an indigenous person, but it's in a Thanksgiving themed Tom of Finland like piece. Uh, so I, I don't know that that's incredibly I mean, during that time, it wasn't as big of an issue, but it's definitely still a problem when we look at it today because 
he's only doing the indigenous related thing because you're talking about a, a holiday where we literally killed indigenous people and gave them yeah. diseases to take their land, which is a, whole a fundamentally, yes, a fundamentally colonial and imperialist um, yeah. kind of kind of approach to the art. And and by the way, like like I don't blame Tom of Finland, right? Like I don't I don't buy because look, Tom of Finland grew up in a period where you know, and and in this context where you know he didn't really. I mean, chances are he didn't. He probably didn't meet a single Asian until he got to the U.S. First of sure. all, let's just say yeah. that, right? But. I don't blame him that much because look, he's he's somebody who had a very particular context. But I think one of the things that the artists and the photographers and the curators and the museum owners and the artists and you know everyone who's who's doing bara, you know everyone who's doing furry art, everyone who's doing pup art, everyone who's doing latex art, what we need to realize today is that we're a global community, right? And 60% of the global population is Asian. If you're going to represent the kink community, you better be representing the global kink community and not just, you know, Europe or not just the US or not. And, and you know, even in Europe and the US, you, can't, you really can't get away anymore with just depicting uh, white kinksters. So it's true. <clears throat> this is one of the things that that really kind of makes me sad is that, you know, there's a reason why we see all this fetishization and ostracization happening, right? One of the things that is a constant struggle, and, and this is every single Asian, gay Asian man goes through this. Everyone, every single gay Asian man goes through this. They get rejected, and they get rejected, and they get rejected, and they get rejected, and they get rejected. And the only person that will actually give them time is somebody who says, I love Chinese food, or I love BTS, or I love anime, right? Uh. And if you're somebody who's an Asian man, right, coming into, or, or an Asian woman also, right, coming into the kink community, or an Asian NB coming into the kink community, coming into the gay community, coming into the LGBTQ world, and you experience basically for all intents and purposes what is apartheid and segregation on these apps and on these events, mm -hmm. it's, it's deeply traumatic. And every one of us has a story like this, and every one of us has dealt with this experience. Um, and, but the thing is, if you peel back the layers, right? Asian fetishization and Asian ostracization and the fact that people have yellow fever, the fact that people have race fetishes, right? People are obsessed with BBC. People are obsessed with, and by the way, there, there are people who are problematic on, on either side too. Like I see, I see a lot of hashtags on Twitter that are like Asians for BBC or, you know, like, and that's really not okay. That's really not okay. Yeah, like if anyone, people of color should be the ones yeah, no fat, really no femmes, okay. no Asians. I mean, it even to this day, exactly. it surprises me that that's still even remotely. And I think some apps have started to actually crack down on that. But the fact that 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 is still a it's it's a not just a representation thing, obviously, because we we see people of different representations now every day in in media more more so in media. But it's still there's still people that push back against that and try to to suppress it and still try to they are racist whether they're overtly or or intentionally they just are and they think that that's okay because there's certain parts of america that don't push back against those problematic standards that were set in in forever ago you know and have just been okay because nobody said anything about it but i i mean more and more you see people kind of acting out against it like i I remember when like kimchi was on rupaul's drag race and she made the song you know no fats no femmes no asians and then that started the conversation you started seeing like grinder and these other apps being like oh maybe that is problematic 
maybe it's not just a, a preference, you know, quote unquote preference. Maybe it's actually an inherent, you know, racist bias that we should probably talk about because yeah. we don't talk about it, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. But to your point, and like, let, no, go ahead. No, no, you know, and, and, and let's be honest, right? <clears throat> I mean, um, you know, even if you take off no Asians off your profile, doesn't mean that you still don't act like no Asians, right? And, sure. and that's, that's exactly. you know, this is a really, um, and, and to your point about representation, right? This is one of the reasons why um, Asians are exoticized and Asians are othered, right? And Asians are tokenized is that, uh, and that's why I asked the question, right? When was the last time you saw two Asians getting at it? you know, in porn, right? Because if you go to Japan, if you go to Taiwan, if you go to Hong Kong, if you go to some of the, some of the, you know, uh, if you, if you, if you, if you, if you travel to, to uh, Thailand, for example, and you, and you go to some of these places where there is proper representation of Asians, it's a very different story, right? And one of the things that I find really interesting is that the reason why people ostracize Asians and the reason why people fetishize Asians is both because of systemic racism and and the and the lack of representation that yep. Asians have. Um, like I can't remember the last time I saw an, a, a photo of an Asian on the front page of Out.com or on the Advocate magazine, right? I can't remember the last time I saw a Claw email or an MAL email that featured an Asian on it, right? Mm -hmm. um, the only you know, but like you know. And, and, and there's so many issues where it's like, you know, people would be much more familiar with Asians and much more, and see us as being less alien, right? See us as being less foreign and see us as being less other than, right? Less weird and less strange, less exotic, less other. If we actually had some proper representation that mirrors the fact that there's 60%, like literally the world population is 60% Asian and there's a ton of us in the kink community. There's tons of us in the kink community. Oh, absolutely. And when you say you have an Asian fetish or yellow fever, right? That's really harmful because what you're saying is you don't see me as a person. You see me just for, right? The sexual stereotypes that you wanna satisfy or mm -hmm. you just see me for my for for my race and you don't see me as the Asian American, right? The, the you, know, um, you know, somebody who's an Asian rubberist, somebody who has a lot of interest in uh, foreign languages, who has a lot of interest in, in anti-racism and you don't see those things because all you see is the picture and the image of the Asian in your mind that you're fantasizing about that you impose on me. And that is systemic. That is a problem of systemic racism and a problem of representation. Um, and it's really sad because, you know, it's one of those things. And, and one thing I hear all of the time, by the way, and this is something that I really hate, is because we've suffered so much of this no Asian style ostracization and this no Asians rejection, there are literally white people who will come to us and say, I fetishize you, you're my China doll um, and you're my geisha doll. And guess what? I am uh, making it, be, you know, I'm doing this because I know you can't get anyone else. And you're actually lucky that I'm fetishizing you in this way. And that's happened to me constantly, right? And this is why I'm not on Grindr. This is why I'm not on Scruff. This is why I'm not on most, like I treat Twitter as my, as my dating app now because like this happens all the time on Recon. It happens all the time on Adam for Adam. It happens all the time on, you name the app. It's happening. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I've I've seen I've seen I've heard stories. I've seen the screen caps that people take. And on one hand, of course, you shouldn't have to go through that. Of course, you like that is not, and that's frustrating for you to have to continually have to do 
I have to go through that and then have to be the advocate for that because I'm sure that that is also hard. I mean, you, you don't have to do it, but you are doing it. So thank you because you have a voice and you have a backbone and you have or not, not even a backbone, but you have a, a platform and a voice and you know how to use it. And obviously you have a backbone as well, but like, <laughs> but I, I wonder, and I, you don't have to answer this. How, how hard is that for you? Like to go through that? Cause I can, I can only imagine, I mean, I am a cis white gay. I have so much privilege and I try to use my platform to, to talk to other people and express the, the hardships that exist within our community. It's not always sunshine and lollipops, you know, it's, it, there's a lot of, of trouble that goes through it. And I was, I, re, I was raised in Seattle. So there's a very large Asian community there. So I feel like I always saw a lot of representation in my community, but that's because, you know, we'd be in a Seattle bar and that we have so many different districts that are like a Chinatown or a Japantown. And so like the representations there, but I can't imagine how difficult that is growing up somewhere else in this country, you know, or in another country where white people are a lot more prominent. Like how, how did that affect you and your, your title year, if you're comfortable going into that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, uh, you know, first of all, <clears throat> I think, um, and, 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 and this is one of the, one of the ways in which gay Asians, um, you know, have a very different uh, uh, kind of, kind of life than gay Asian Americans or gay diasporic Asians. Right. So, so Asians who are, who are not in Asia, right. Fundamentally growing up in a place where we're constantly othered and, and treated as foreign, just like, um, you know, people who are living in, in a, in a, in a, in a black minority, in a, in a, in a predominantly white city or a, or a, or a brown minority in a predominantly white city. Um, and that really does something to your brain. I mean, you know, one of the things that, that, that I found is that over the course of my upbringing, because I saw, I didn't see anyone who was Asian, who was gay. Mm. I didn't see anyone like the only person I saw who was gay and Asian at that time was George Takei. Sure. And, but I never saw like two Asians, like I never saw two Asian Americans in a, in a loving gay relationship. And I certainly didn't see two gay Asians in a loving kink relationship. Right. That's even far, further from what's possible. Right. Mm -hmm. And it, and it really does something to you as a kid, because, you know, when I was in middle school, I went through uh, a, a, several months of suicidal depression where um, I literally prayed to God. Uh, and, and, you know, I know that we both have a, a somewhat Christian upbringing because I prayed to God and I said, you know, either make me straight or make me white, pick one. Uh. And it just, it like that in and of itself is something that a lot of Asians have experienced and go through as well, right? Is this internalized anti-Asian racism, this internalized homophobia as well. I got over the internalized homophobia. It took me a long time to get over the internalized anti-Asianness and the internalized anti-Asian racism. During my title year, though, is when things got really, you know, and, and you know, I had a very similar experience to UAMP where I was able to join the kink community in Boston, in New England, in Providence, in Provincetown, Cape Cod. And I saw people like me. I saw people of color. I, I have, you know, you know, I, you know, I consider a lot of those folks in the New England community to be some of my dearest friends because of the fact that they welcomed me with open arms and were were uh, uh, really passionate about inclusion and representation. 
during my initial title year, so when I was actually New England rubber, I didn't have any racism happen to me, right? Like it was actually, you know, I never experienced any sort of racism apart from the racism that is normal on the apps and normal at events, right? Sure. But I never experienced any racism from the community. When I became MIR, however, that changed. And I can tell you that literally as soon as my win was announced on the live stream on Facebook, some of the comments that you would see pop up, and, and if you go back, you can probably actually go and check out some of these comments just in case people think I'm lying, which is something that a lot of people think, by the way. Um, you see these comments pop up like, ew, what's a chink doing as MIR? Or, mm. oh God, what, a, what an ugly gook, right? Like mm. these slurs that are really offensive and are what we consider to be just as bad as the N-word, right? Mm -hmm. Are things that people were saying just as if they were normal. And this is why I say all the time that Asians um, are in some ways the last minority that it's okay to be racist against, that it's still permissible and still okay. There's really no consequences if you're racist towards Asians, right? Mm -hmm. And all throughout my time, and, and let, me, let me tell you, right, um, MAL, there's a reason why I uh, don't go to MAL. And, and actually, there's a really bad story that happened within the first three months of my title year that I, I posted on Facebook that a lot of people have forgotten. Um, Patty Patty was uh, IMSL, International Ms. Leather, uh, 2014. Um, and she went to, I believe it was either IML or MAL, one of the, one of the, one of the two. And uh, she experienced a, a misogynistic uh, assault and, and attack in an elevator at, I believe it was IML actually. And, and scarcely less than a year after this happened to Patty Patty, the same thing happened to me at MAL. Um, I was going up to the atrium in an elevator, and I was in an elevator full of uh, other white game, of, of white game men, and I was the only person of color, the only Asian there. And uh, this was just after Trump's election, and I still remember this like it was yesterday. You know, I, I was, uh, the elevator stopped several floors, people got off. There was this one drunk gay white man who pushed me out of the elevator when I wasn't at my floor, right? And he said to me, to my face, he said, now that Trump's president, you can't be in this elevator with us. Mm. And um, uh, the following year, I couldn't go to MAL. The following year after that, I couldn't go to MAL. This past year in 2019, I was actually planning to go to MAL because I, because I was announced as an IML judge, um, mm. MAL. But on my way to the Hyatt, I, I just couldn't do it because of the trauma of that physical assault and that for all intents and purposes, what was a hate crime, right? Yeah. In that elevator um, had affected me so deeply that I'm really not sure whether or not I'll be able to go to MAL ever again, because I literally turned around. I was three blocks away from the Hyatt and I had such bad PTSD that I just went right to Union Station instead oh, and went so straight. Sorry. And so this is what people don't realize, right? Is that um, this is happening all around us all the time. And there are more, I would say there are just as many, if not more Asians that have left the kink community and have said goodbye to all these events than there are who are still in it. To your point, like you look at apps or websites that revolve around kink and fetish and you see these guidelines, which are kind of wishy-washy most of the time. And then you look at the actions of the website and the fact that they allow certain, you know, supremacist groups to have insignias or certain things on gear and people to express that. Um, or even to just continue to list the no fats, no femmes, no Asians, no this or that, like as a quote unquote preference and not as actual racism is what we should call it when you are literally treating someone differently because of how they look or their upbringing or their race. And it's really 
frustrating and disheartening because it's almost like a it's almost like a trying to get around like guidelines of like well what is what is nudity and what's not nudity like oh well this racism's okay but this racism's not you can't pick and choose racism you know and these websites try to well it's very difficult to to make a judgment call no if somebody is doing something that's actively harming someone and then that is a problem i, I mean absolutely yes race play is a thing and i am not saying i i'm obviously not going to say race play is good and okay some people use that play as an excuse to be racist and some people like i've i've heard um i'm forgetting her name now but she's a a very very powerful woman of color who tells amazing stories about her her kinks and she's kinky and i'll i wish i remembered her name right now but she i remember she told this story on body storytelling it's another podcast where she was using race play to kind of play out fantasies but also get over to her traumatic past and to her that's completely valid but like it's hard to then turn around and express why that's a problem to white people who want to or or anyone who wants to get into that play without knowing the ramifications and the the trauma and the hardships that people have gone through you know And, and, you know, it's very interesting that you mentioned that, actually, because, you know, this goes back to, <clears throat> I think, one one issue that a lot of people have with the way that I talk about Asian fetish and yellow fever and all of that stuff is that they think I'm calling them racist. Look, it's not like what's racist is the race preference. What's racist is the is the racial fetish. Right. And there are ways that you can be inclusive without imposing your toxicity on other people. And so like race play is a perfect example of this, right? Like I understand that there are some people who wanna have safe, sane, consensual race play, right? Sure. Now, when you start to do that outside of the privacy of your, of your own bedroom or your own home and you start to impose trauma on others, that's when it doesn't become okay. Right. And I think everyone agrees with that. Right. Like, you know, um, for example, people who use Nazi insignia, right. Like, like do whatever you want. I mean, still, I think that's a pretty problematic thing, even in the privacy of your own home. But look, if like you better not be showing anyone else that because this is an extremely traumatizing uh, image and extremely traumatizing symbol. Um, And Asian fetish is the same thing. Right. It's like, look, there are, you know, like you can, you don't have to, you, you, you should not be toxic towards Asians, right? And so when it comes to, and for example, this happened to me in, in, in Mexico City, actually, uh, a couple years ago. Um, you know, I would, you know, I was uh, talking to this guy. He was, he was really nice, really attractive. He was in rubber. So of course that already gets me going. <laughs> and as we're making out, he whispers in my ear, I love Chinese food. Oh, and I immediately am like, look, no, no, bye. No. And the the sad part is it would have, it would have gone all the way. It would have gone all the way if he hadn't said that, that kind of toxicity and that kind of like, like it's a problem when you impose your toxicity or when you start to project Mm -hmm. your Asian fetish or your yellow fever on other people, that's when it becomes racist, right? Mm -hmm. Because when you start to, well, overtly racist, and I mean, outwardly racist, um, when you start to literally treat Asians as objects and you treat them as exotic trophies and you say, oh, I love Chinese food. And I know that that's something that you love too. How do you know that, first of all, right? How do you know that? And number two, why are you saying this to me, right? Like it doesn't make me in any way more attracted to you, 
right? I would have much rather you told me something about how hot my latex is or, you know, ask me about how I like the music that's playing in the bar. Um, and so this, this, this is where people need to recognize that, look, when you start to project these things on other people, when you start to project your race play on others, when you start to project these problematic behaviors on other people, that's when you're really actually not just being racist, but you're actually resurfacing a lot of trauma for these people. Because look, when it comes to myself, when I was younger, I got a lot of bullying and a lot of discrimination for being Asian, right? Mm -hmm. And when, when people say things like, where are you really from? Or, you know, um, what, what country are you from? That brings me right back to every single one of those teachers and every single one of those, you know, classmates that mm. would laugh about my last name or would laugh about my Asianness and pull their eyes back in class, right? Like that's what that brings me back to. And so when people are focused on our race, whether it's, you know, you know, to be, you know, fetishizing the race or ostracizing the race, right? That's a really problematic thing because what you're doing is you're is you're increasing the level of how much that person has to now go through the emotional labor of dealing with that trauma. And it's wow. not something anyone wants to deal with. Um, and, and one of the things that I think is, is, is really sad is that, um, you know, I think there are still a lot of people in the community that don't understand this from a fundamental standpoint. And sure. um, I'll mention very briefly what happened to me last year. Um, you know, I was announced as IML judge um, back in January. And there's always been these whispers because I'm very outspoken about anti-racism. I'm very outspoken about the experience that we have as black indigenous and people of color in the community. Um, there's a lot of people that don't like me. And there's a lot of people that uh, argue that I'm racist towards white people. There's been no proof of that, no screenshots, no nothing say, showing that I ever said anything of that nature. Sure. Um, and of course, there was a campaign in Europe to actually remove me as IML judge because they argued that I'd be racist against white European contestants. In September of last year, I, I made a, what I thought, thought was a pretty benign statement, you know, basically sharing my own personal experience at Folsom Europe, uh, talking about how I had had, um, you know, white men try to steal my sash from me, telling me that I couldn't call myself Mr. National Rubber, that I was Mr. China or Mr. Japan Rubber, you know, people who would uh, literally walk up to me and tell me that I had no right to be in the spaces that I was in, that I should go back to where I was from and where they meant, I don't really know, right? Sure. Um, and, uh, you know, I was very clear about the fact that I said, look, racism is rampant. Uh, racist behavior is rampant at Folsom Europe and I'm not going back. For some reason, that, that post got all of these people uh, to start mm -hmm. deciding to uh, start a, a hate campaign against me I got death threats, I got hate mail. And this is in addition to all the hate mail that I've already gotten right over yeah. the years, because I get hate mail routinely. Um, but you know, death threats and hate mail, like people saying, oh, like, you know, next time I see you at an event, it's not gonna end well for you. Or, oh, like, uh, you, know, you know, like, you know, people actually wishing physical harm on me mm -hmm. because I speak out against, against racism. And I speak out about what it's like to be Asian in this community just for being vocal. Mm -hmm. People wanna kill me which is, which is really remarkable. You really remarkable. Yeah. And, and, you know, I get it. I mean, you know, the thing is that people who are, um, you know, people in Europe have a very different understanding of racism and a very different understanding of, of what the experience of people of color is. Um, but one thing that really surprised me is that I was at a European contest. I was judging a uh, European contest during my title year. I'm not going to name which one it was, but um, they actually disqualified one of my interview questions. 
turns out that this very large American city, uh, this very large European city has a large immigrant population, right? And I'm once again, I'm not going to name the city, yeah. but you can imagine there are many, 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 you know, alpha cities or global cities in Europe that have very significant immigrant populations. And it was a very simple question I asked during the interview round. I said, hey, what are you doing to reach out to these people of color who I don't see here in this community, right? I don't see them at these events. Yeah. They might be wearing a hijab, right? Or they might be Asian or they might be Muslim or they might be, you know, people who don't speak your language as their first language. But that doesn't mean that, they're, that they can't be part of your community. And you know what the answer that I got back was? They said, we're disqualifying this question because it's not something that will ever be part of their culture. Ooh. And that just, that just flabbergasted me. I was like, in what world is kink something that is culturally only for white people or, or, or people who have been racialized in white societies? Um, and, and that just, once again, hurts representation so much. Because once you feel just the slightest bit unwelcome, you're not coming back. Well, and, and, and I think... Like yep. just talk about like Stonewall. Stonewall wasn't started by the white gays, you know. Exactly. Like yeah, there were there were leather men, leather women, leather leather people there from the get go. But you can't you can't act as if you're a part of a community that only exists because the the marginalized people within that community started and and pushed back first and were the loudest. And then yeah, you came along, you helped them. But if they hadn't opened up the door, you couldn't uh, like blown it in and, and made change happen. And I, it's very odd, or not odd, convenient for certain people when they they forget how movements like that started. Um, mm -hmm. But Absolutely. I, I think that that kind of leads into one of the more important, if not the most important question that I had in our conversation is, is what can people do, in your opinion, to not only be against racism, but be so overtly anti-racist that we actually make people rethink their standards, maybe realize that what they say and what they do does have impact and harm. And, you know, putting people of different body types, color, uh, just providing representation is not a bad thing. I, 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 I don't like, I know how I, I would do it and I talk and I provide platform for, for stories like yours and for experiences because we all come from somewhere, but like, what can, what can the random fetish person or kinkster on a, an app or at an event do to, to help? Sure. Yeah, and I'll, and I'll preface this by saying that, you know, what makes me really sad is that in, in some ways we're very quickly reaching a point of no return. Mm -hmm. um, and I say this because when you talk to BIPOC, when you talk to black indigenous and people of color in the community, and you talk to um, Asians in the community, you talk to um, women in the community, you talk to trans, non-binary uh, GNC folks in the community, a lot of us are really fed up with the, with the current, with just in general, how things are going, right? And, um, you know, one thing that I, that, I, that I have heard from a lot of people, and this is not something I've heard from just a few people, I've heard this from a lot of people, is that, you know, once this whole, once all the dust settles from this pandemic, right, we are gonna be much more focused on looking at who actually is putting their money where their mouth is, who actually is committed to anti-racism and who actually will do something about it, right? Yeah. Because here's what I will say is that after this pandemic is over, I can tell you right now that I'm not giving any money 
to anyone who refuses to have uh, models of color on their product pages. I'm not giving any money to events that don't have a person of color on their marketing or at least a woman on their marketing. I'm not giving any money to any event or any uh, anyone who doesn't have a code, a code of conduct that is actually enforced and actually has teeth. Because that's the fundamental issue that a lot of people have with, the, with these events and with the apps is that you can say all you want to that you're anti-racist. Let's see you actually go through and call out this person as toxic, ban them from the event, ban them from their local community, make it known that this person is a is, is a is a racist individual. And you know, we've already done this in the past, right? With people who are extremely problematic, who violate consent, who who have, you know, whose actions have led to people's deaths in the community, right? We we ostracize them. And the fact that we don't see fit to ostracize racists in this community. The fact that we don't see fit to ostracize transphobes in this community, the fact that we don't see fit to ostracize misogynists in this community says a lot more about us as a community than it does about anything else that we want to talk about, right? And, well, and, and this our is a priorities, really, really big thing. you know, our priorities too. Yeah. So, um, you know, all this to say that I know that there are a lot of people who are going to be watching very closely, right? And I'll be watching very closely. The way that MAL, CLAW, MIR, IML, all these events in Folsom Europe, Folsom East, Folsom SF, you know, up your alley, how they all react to this anti-racism awakening that's ha happened um, thanks to obviously Black Lives Matter and Black Trans Lives Matter and all these activists who have been at the forefront of fighting against police brutality and fighting against racist violence mm -hmm. for uh, uh, decades and centuries now, right? And um, you know, we are, we as a, as a united front of people of color, we're going to be watching very closely exactly how uh, these organizations actually react. Now, um, that being said, you know, I think that for individuals, there's a lot of stuff that you can do too. And, and this is one of the things that um, I think is really hard for some people to understand is that, you know, we get it. As people of color, we get it. It's hard to speak up about racism. It's hard to know where your lane is. It's hard to know how to be an ally. But one of the most fundamental things that I think everyone has to realize is that when we speak up about these issues, right? When I'm an Asian American and I'm speaking about anti-Asian racism, when you know someone like Taisha Best, um, who runs Pockle, right, mm -hmm. uh, speaks up about anti-blackness and anti-black racism in the kink community, that is emotionally really hard for us. And you yeah. sense this too. When I was um, speaking on that Secret Talents of Pets event, you know, that was a hard speech for me to give emotionally, and. The amount of emotional labor that we constantly have to do to educate people and to tell people that, you know, these things are wrong, you got to be calling these things out, is fundamentally very exhausting. And I think we've now gotten to the point where a lot of BIPOC, a lot of people of color are frankly just tired of doing that work. We want to stop having to do so much educating. And we want for our white allies, we want for people who are anti-racist in the and and and, and who are white and who are with us in the kink community to start stepping up and to start doing some of the educating on our behalf so that we can use up less of our spoons, so that we can use up less of our mental health reserves and our emotional reserves and focus on some of the things that are more important still, right? Things that are even more important that are still problems that we need to address. And this is where I would say that there's a very big difference between asking a person of color for help, right? Saying, hey, I really could use your advice about how to be more anti-racist. That's asking us for labor, right? You're asking us to teach you something that you could find on the internet that you could read 
a number of books on, right? There's there's hundreds of books about anti-racism, starting with Ibram Kendi's book, right? That you can start with to learn about how to help help ally with us instead of coming to us and asking us for that information, right? Because one of the things that we want to focus on more is stuff that brings us joy and stuff that brings us representation and not things that bring us stress and stuff that bring us exhaustion. And what I mean by that is, if you're somebody who has a, 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 some power in the kink community or in the fetish community or in the LGBTQ community, right? You're somebody who works in media, right? Just like uh, Amp here, right? And you're somebody who really believes in representation. And I will be one of the first to say that what's the safe word, right? Has been at the very forefront of making sure that a lot of our voices are represented and a lot of our voices are heard. So first and foremost, I wanna thank uh, uh, you know, Amp for being so resolute in that. But some of the other people, right? Like podcasts, people, people who do art, people who do bara art, people who are doing furry art, people who are writing, people who are doing Tom and Finland style art, people who are photographers, people who are museum curators. One of the things that we want for uh, every ally to recognize is we've had enough of the educating. We've had enough of the tokenism. We don't want to just be another person on your judging panel or another person in your in your boardroom who's going to tell you about how bad racism is. Mm. Why don't you, instead of doing all of that, give us a platform, center our voices, uplift the work that we do, right? Do things that actually further the representation of people of color in the community and that actually fight back against some of these things. I want somebody who's a photographer to tell me, how are they going to solve the problem that a lot of black kinksters in our community, a lot of black and brown kinksters in our community cannot afford one of their photo shoots, mm -hmm. right? Who are the people who are predominantly able to pay for these photo shoots? They're white people, they're Asian people in the kink community, but we're leaving behind all these people who, and, and so this is what I told actually to, to a friend of mine who's a photographer, I said, you know what I think you should do? Given that your calendar next year is just all white models, why don't you go and offer a free shoot to somebody who's a black member of the community who can't afford one of these shoots or, or somebody who's you know, an immigrant um, who's a kinkster who can't afford one of these shoots or doesn't feel like, uh, or actually even, even if they could afford it, doesn't feel like they, um, you know, based on your previous work, they don't wanna pay for it because all they see in your previous work is white people, right? Yeah. And you know, once again, if you're designing a poster, if you're um, you know, creating a website for, for, for a fetish brand, if you're doing something like um, you know, having somebody on a podcast, for example, right? You wanna, don't, don't ask us to educate, don't ask us to perform more labor for you, center us, uplift us, highlight us, elevate us, put us on stage, put us in the spotlight, sponsor us, mm -hmm. sponsor us, right? Like, like show us that you care about us more than just as victims of racism, but as people who are worthy of celebration and as worthy of visibility as the cis white gay men in our community. That's what we're fundamentally asking for. And, and I see a lot of people with Black Lives Matter and BLM and BLTM in their profiles. But what I can tell you is a lot of us people of color, we look at that and we say, okay, that's very performative, but tell us more about what you're actually doing, right? What is it that you're actually doing on the ground that's making a difference? Are you calling out people on Grindr for having no Asians in their profile? Are you refusing play and sex to people who are racist? Because let me tell you right now, there's a lot of people in this community who say, oh, I don't like no Asians. I don't like no blacks. I, don't re I refuse to say those things. Racial preferences are bad. And yet 
they are totally fine with going on to Grindr and hooking up with somebody who has those things in their profile because they think with their dick and their ass and not with their brain and their heart. And so that's what I'm asking for, right? Exactly. It doesn't affect, and that's the thing that I need everyone to kind of fundamentally internalize is that, you know, racism is about all of us. Racism is a problem for all of us. Mm-hmm. because if you are just going to sit back and condone this behavior, you're just as bad as the racists themselves. If you're just going to sit back and say, well, it doesn't affect me, right? I don't have to do anything to, to you know, I'm still going to play with my, you know, friend who has no Asians in their profile, even though I personally am against that harm, you're still just as bad. You're an enabler, right? And that's one of the things that's really problematic about a lot of people's actions. And this is why I talk a lot about getting up out of your armchair, right? And when you talk about anti-racism, be an actual ally, right? And being an ally doesn't just mean putting up BLM as a hashtag in your profile, right? It means really doing some critical thinking about your own biases, about the biases of people around you, about the way that systemic racism manifests itself in so many different ways. Because one of the things that I think a lot of people haven't made the connection between is, look, what happened to me last year, all the hate mail, all the death threats I got, the fact that within five minutes of winning MIR, I got called a chink and a gook, (laughs) you know, within five minutes after I won the contest, that's all connected to sexual racism and casual racism and the way that racism manifests itself in in these systems of oppression. Racism doesn't just stop because you went into your bedroom and now you're putting a dildo in your ass or you're, you're putting your chastity cage on or you're putting your pup hood on, right? Racism doesn't end just because you've gotten into the privacy of your, own, of your own home and now you can have fun with somebody else on your sling. Racism is everywhere and it's everywhere around us. And the thing that a lot of people don't recognize as well is that, look, I'm speaking up about a lot of the racism that ha- happens to me. And I've spoken up about a lot of the incidents of hate that have happened to me but there are hundreds of other stories, thousands of other stories. For every one Asian that's told a single story, there are hundreds of Asians who have hundreds of similar stories to tell. And it's like an iceberg, right? And racism does not stop at your bedroom door. And this is the thing that I want everyone to think about is look, the way that you act in the kink community has a direct relationship to the way that you act outside of the kink community or outside of the gay community. If you're somebody who's going to walk up to me and call me a chink at a kink event, that's happened to me, by the way. If you're somebody who's going to walk up to me and push me out of an elevator because I'm Asian, if you're somebody who's going to, you know, send me a death threat and say that I deserve to die because I called out racist hate, how can I trust you anywhere else? How can I trust that as the judge in my case, you're not going to rule against me because of your anti-Asian bias? in terms of sexual racism. How do I know that as a judge in the case of somebody who is a black man, you are not gonna ultimately rule against them because of your fetishization of BBC? How do I know that if you're my boss at work, you're not gonna deny me a promotion or deny me a raise because you don't like Asians or because you think no Asians behavior is okay? Mm-hmm. We, the, the behavior that we condone, the behavior that we tolerate within the King community directly impacts and is directly connected to all the behavior that we condone and tolerate outside of the King community. And so this is where I have to say, look, if you're somebody who doesn't believe that the, you know, saying no Blacks, no Asians has an impact outside of the King community, look at me as an example. Mm-hmm. Look at the Black women who have suffered misogynoir in our community as an example. Look at all of the incidents of hate. And now you tell me that there is no connection between all of these things. And this is something that's, that a lot of white people have told me, by the way, 
over the course of the last years, they said, oh, it's just a few people. Oh, it's just a, a couple of people. Oh, it's just the haters who are jealous. If that's the case, why are there so many of them? Why is it that they're so vocal? Why is it that you as an ally are not going over there and silencing them and preventing them from saying these things? Just because you're a good white ally doesn't mean that you suddenly don't have the responsibility of calling in your own kind, calling in your own white folk and saying, this is not okay. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of allyship that I think a lot of us wanna see more of. And you know, to be honest, very frankly, a lot of us are really tired and a lot of us are really, really sick of it. And um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion that I've had with other folks as well about how can we begin to potentially even create space, more spaces and more events and more apps and more environments that are just for us. And I don't think anyone wants more segregation and more apartheid than there already is in our community. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what I would say to beseech to everybody is look, you know, racism doesn't stop just because you went into your bedroom. Racism is on your app. Racism is on your browser history. If you're searching for Asians for BBC, or if you're searching for BBC, or if you're searching for rice, or if you're searching for beans on Pornhub, or if you're searching for you know something like Asian twink, you're part of the problem. You're enabling all of these things to fester in our community, yep. and it's something that we really need to work on. And what I'm you know really asking is for the people who up until now have said, hey, you know, yes, racism is bad. It's something that I see all the time. We hear about it all the time but it doesn't affect me. So I'm just gonna keep on posting my thirst traps and I'm just gonna keep on you know, acting as if it doesn't exist because this is one thing I notice on Twitter, by the way, and I think you do too, Amp, is that when it comes to the standards, there are very different standards, right? When it comes to cis gay white men who are on kink Twitter, mm. you better not be posting anything political. You better not be posting anything about racism because mm. you start losing followers. And let me tell you, if you're, if you're a person of color, you, are, you have to be posting about politics because our entire lives are political. But it seems like every single time I speak up about anti-racism and I'm not posting another thirst trap with, with me and rubber, I lose followers. And I, and I get people who say, look, I didn't follow you for this content. And it's like, well, tough luck because this is my life. I wanna see people stand up and I wanna see people help us and recognize that what we're doing is extremely laborious and extremely exhausting. We could use some help from people to pick up the slack. And first off, thank you for for being so loud and out there as you are. Uh, second off, I'm sorry. You know, I, I'm sorry because I, I, I see the struggle that you've had. I see the hardships that you've gone through. I see the, the stress that it causes not only you, but but other people within our community who who have the voice and the power and the ability to be activists in that in that way but that should not just fall on their shoulders. And as you said, being an activist, being an ally, it, they're not passive terms. They're not, they're not 280 characters on Twitter tweeted out and then all of a sudden, yay, we, brought, we, we defeated racism. The, the evil is gone because I tweeted something. No, you have, to, you have to donate. You have to put yourself out there. You have to protest. You have to, I mean, as a, as a cis white gay, like, I should be in front of people that could actively be harmed because of the color of their skin or because of their race. And that, and I shouldn't be thanked for that. That should just be something that we're doing because people need help. And as you said, it's exhausting. So, I mean, first of all, I'm sorry that you had to come on here and say all of that, but also just deeply thank you for sharing your experience because yeah, I can listen to you, but I could never, 
I, I, I can and do and will and always will be there to listen and help you in, in any way I can. But also the fact that you have to tell that story is so frustrating because I, I, can't, I can't share those experiences because I haven't had to go through them. And I'm lucky because of that. But I just want to say thank you. And I, I know how frustrating and hard that is. And I appreciate the time that you take and the fact that you put your, yourself out there because when you are representing yourself, when you are providing that space for people to have these conversations with you, that that provides, I hope, representation that is necessary for the next generation of possible kinksters of of color that that need that, you know. Yeah, and that is exactly. And, and so, so first of all, thank you, Amp. And and um, you know, I mean, I mean, we're we're friends outside of this, and I know how much you you have supported me and given me so much love and and so much support over the years. That you know, I think, um, you know, uh, uh, one thing I can say is this is one of those good podcasts <laughs> that if you want to hear from more people of color and, and from people who are on the fringes of our community or who have been marginalized historically in this community, you know, I, I just love the work that you're doing, Amp, and I want you to keep it up, obviously. Um, obviously. But to the, obviously, and, and to the point of, of um, you know, what, what you just mentioned, the next generations, right? I spent a year away from this community, and I'm going to get a little emotional here because, um, I spent a year away from the community to deal with all this trauma, right? To deal with all the racism that I've suffered over the past four years and to deal with, um, it really did a number on me, right? Like um, it, it turned my sex drive to zero. Um, I didn't wear rubber for six months. Uh, it completely shut me down. It made me very depressed. It made me suicidal. Um, those death threats and, and the hate mail and all the weight of what happened for those four years. And, you know, the, there's only one reason why I came back and one reason only. And that is to make sure that what I went through, what black men and women in this community have to go through, what brown men and women have to go through in this community, what, what indigenous NBs and trans and GNC folks have to go through in this community, what BIPOC, black, people, black indigenous and people of color have to go through in this community never happens again. Yeah. I would, what I really want to see, and it's my utmost desire, is that we move forward as a community in such a way that 30 years from now, that Asian kinkster or that black kinkster who looks just like me doesn't have to deal with no Asians, doesn't have to deal with no blacks, doesn't have to deal with BBC fetish or yellow fever doesn't have to deal with being ostracized because of our race. That's the reason I came back. Not because I care about some title, mm -hmm. not because I care about some prestige in the community or not because I care about anything else. I'm back because I really want to make sure that we, we owe something to the next generation of kinksters. We, we, the, you know, we, are we, you know, we're standing on the shoulders of the people who came before us, right? We're standing on the shoulders of the leather men, the leather women, the, 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 the old guard folks, you know, the, the uh, trans leather folks, the, the NB leather folks who, who built this community from the ground up, right? You stand on their shoulders and just as we owe a debt to them, we need to pay, off, pay it forward. We need to pay forward this, 
the way in which our queerness, our kinkiness, our fetishness have become things that we can celebrate and not things that we're ashamed of. We have to have that same exact commitment to fighting racism, fighting transphobia, to fighting misogyny, to fighting misogynoir, to fighting ageism, ableism, to fighting every, to fighting Islamophobia, anti-Semitism. We have to be working just as hard as those who came before us during the AIDS crisis, mm -hmm. during everything that happened with Stonewall, during the gay liberation movement. We have to, we owe it to them. Because I can tell you right now that if 30 years from now, it's still the same. And if 30 years from now, somebody has to go through the same exact experience that I went through. Somebody has to go through the same exact experiences that Taisha went through. Somebody has to go through the same exact experiences that Patty went through. We failed as a community if this is still happening 30 years from now. And if we don't want this to keep happening, we need people to stand up. We need people to challenge each other, challenge themselves, challenge your biases, challenge your racism, challenge your oppressions, challenge the systems that are still doing all of these, doing all of this harm and all of this damage. Do something about it. Challenge your biases the same way that your kinks and your fetishes challenge you. And do it with love, do it for us. Do it not just for us, because we're already damaged goods, <laughs> but do it for everyone who comes afterwards. Do it so that the next trans person who walks into MIR or walks into CLAW or walks into, or, or logs onto Grindr doesn't have to feel this hate and doesn't have to feel this depression and this trauma and this sadness and what we go through. I don't care about anything else anymore. And um, that's the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm back. But, you know, I think that, I, I hope that in sharing my experiences, a lot of people out there hear me and recognize a year away from the community is a long time. Yeah. And it took me that entire year to deal with my trauma, to really come to terms with what happened and to get back to normal. And once again, I want to highlight this again. There's so many, there are just as many Asians that have left the community that are nowhere to be found anymore. I know them because I talk to them. Mm -hmm. But there are so many Asians that want nothing to do with the kink community anymore, want nothing to do with the gay community anymore, even though they're both gay and kinky because of how they've been treated by our community and because of how they've been treated on the apps and at our events. So I've shared for an hour or however long we've been talking <laughs> what I went through over the last year, over the last four years, but I always want everyone to remember that for every story that I've told, there's hundreds more like it. For everyone like me, there's hundreds more of us, thousands more of us. And if you cared all about the next generation of this community, we need to fight mm -hmm. and we need to bring racism down and bring bigotry down. Amen. Preston, I, I don't want to, I obviously don't want to end this conversation, um, but I also don't want to keep you in rubber because I know you're probably sweating just a little bit. <laughs> no, I'm fine, actually. I'm going out for a photo shoot after this, actually. Are you so, really? Uh, oh my God. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know, I got to always be, uh, you know, you know, flexing out there. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope that your photo shoot goes well, but I do want to end this conversation, which is not only important, but hopefully insightful um, and eye-opening to everybody listening, watching, uh, enjoying the content by just allowing you the space and the platform to 
tell everybody where they can find you. Um, tell everybody where, if they want to get involved and help out whatever your cause, your next big project is, what they can do to help. Um, and just also to say thank you for taking the time for doing the work and being just a lovely human that, that, that I truly cherish and appreciate. Oh, thanks, Amp. Um, you know, I feel exactly the same way about you. So, <laughs> um, well, all right, I'll keep this short. Uh, I know I've been really long-winded during this whole chat. I'm sorry, Amp. Sorry. But um, yeah, I'll keep it short. Um, so, uh, you know, during the year I was away, I, I, I deleted my Facebook, so you can't find me on Facebook anymore. But um, you can search because that's where most of the uh, hate mail and death threats occurred. Mm -hmm. And uh, just as a side note, I got zero help from Facebook. So, um, you know, if you're if you're if you're from Facebook listening to this, do better with your harassment policies, Facebook. Um, anyways, if you want to find me, <laughs> uh, you can find me on Instagram. I'm instagram.com slash mirubberxx. You can also find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash mirubberxx. Those are both my kind of primary social media handles. You can also find me on FetLife and Recon as WEX, which is W-E-X-X. -X. But to be honest, given everything I've shared today, I'm not really on FetLife or Recon very much. So, uh, you know, just uh, if you do reach out on those, it might take me a while to respond, but I will respond eventually. <laughs> and then um, the final way that you can get in touch with me, and this is actually a project that I'm working on, you know, as I mentioned earlier, my, my sole focus coming back to the community, you know, in the past, I've been involved in a lot of different things. I've been involved in... Um, you know, obviously student groups for kink. I've been involved in Mr. Rubber Brazil, Mr. Rubber Mexico and getting those off the ground. But I'm actually focused first and foremost on um, a new anti-racist affinity group that I just started with the help of a bunch of amazing fellow anti-racist Asians called um, the Asian Leather and Kink Alliance or ALCA. And um, we have a Twitter account. It's twitter.com slash Asian Leather. And um, I'll just share very briefly what we're about. Um, First and foremost, we're an anti-racist affinity group that is really meant to help uh, Asians, folks of Asian descent, folks of Asian heritage, who are in the kink and fetish community who deal with a lot of this anti-Asian trauma, a lot of this racism, a lot of this bigotry, to come together and have a place to talk about it and to have a safe space for, for us to not only discuss these things, but also organize as well. Um, we are a, a group that accepts um, everyone. So if you have Asian heritage, uh, regardless of what part of Asia, West Asia, East Asia, Southeast Asia, uh, South Asia, um, Central Asia, wherever you call your roots from, um, you are welcome. And we are open to all genders, uh, all sexualities, inclu in including asexual and, and those who identify on the gray spectrum as well. And uh, we also don't have any uh, limitation on Asian heritage. So um, if you are half Asian, if you are mixed race, or if you are adopted, or if you're somebody who um, you know, has Asian roots, but uh, don't have a deep connection to them, we welcome you as well. The way to get in touch with us on Asian leather is um, because of the fact that we are a safe space and we are a, a, you know, primarily focused on um, helping Asians, uh, we do have an application process. What you do is you can um, uh, send us a DM, a direct message on Twitter, with your with one social media or fetish profile on a site such as Twitter, Instagram, Recon, Facebook. Uh, you can do FetLife. You can do Team Locked, Pup Space, uh, whatever social media you have. Um, and then also, if you could share in three to five sentences, 
uh, how your Asian-ness or your Asian heritage has impacted you in the kink and fetish community. Uh, we'll review your submission and bring you right on into our Discord community. There is a similarly named group on Facebook called the Asian Leather and Fetish Association. Uh, they're not affiliated with us. They're um, a Facebook group. We have a really strong focus on anti-racism and we're really focused on, on addressing uh, the trauma that Asians routinely face in the kink and fetish community. So uh, just want to do that once more time. One more time, twitter.com slash Asian Leather. And if you want to get in touch with me, that's M-I-Rubber-X-X on Instagram and Twitter and Wex, W-E-X-X on Recon and FetLife. And, it, oh, there goes our camera for anyone watching this video. So now you can't see what sexy times we're getting up to. But you can follow Preston on his social media. You can follow me at PupAmp everywhere. You can follow What's the Safe Word on the socials, Twitter, YouTube, podcast. And don't forget to leave a like, comment, and review if you enjoy the podcast every week. But most importantly, one last big thank you to you, Preston. Thank you, Amp. And I really appreciate being here. And thank you, Preston, again, for being on the show and doing that hard work in the community. And some of that work is in your families and in your own homes and in your chosen families and with your partners and with your with with the, with the people you play with. Uh, it's you know, it's it's something that, in some ways, is harder and more challenging. So, um, anyways, I just want to say it was such a pleasure, Amp, as always. Um, and I'm happy to come back anytime uh, you want me to to talk your ear off. I, you know, I like good conversations like this, even if they do go a little long. I think this is actually our longest episode, but not to drag it out any longer. But Preston, I got to let you go, and we will see everybody next time. And, and then this is generally where the. The, 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 de, 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 de. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, you get it. <laughs>